Better? Oh, okay. Yeah. Y'all are going to just walk out of here right now. <laughs> okay, thank you for hanging in there. So, uh, today, um, for those of you who are, you know, interested in taking notes, um, a word of caution. Uh, it, I'm looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and so uh, it's not going to be nice and tidy. However, um, I'm sharing and reflecting on some thoughts and ideas in the chapter with you. Hopefully, it will be a blessing, um, and you can take what you can from it. Of course, leave what is not profitable to you. Um, So, the title of the sermon is The Duty, the Difficulty, and the Destiny. The Duty, the Difficulty, and the Destiny. I'd like to call this uh, my 3D sermon. And so, we're going to be looking at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, um, and in the interest of time, I'll just be highlighting some impressive passages. This is a great chapter, by the way, for um, you that are looking for a devotional chapter to read with your families or by yourself, so there's, it's such a rich chapter. <clears throat> So, we will be reading together 2 Corinthians chapter 4, found on page 965, if you're using the black Bibles. And once again, if you are able to stand, could you please stand for the reading of God's word? Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced to disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. We who live, I'm sorry, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. For we do not lose heart, though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are not seen. Or unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
You may be seated. Thanks be to God for his holy word. So I'll start off here with the duty, okay, for the first part. And um, just briefly look again at verses 1 to 2. The apostle begins this chapter, and, you know, as, as many of you know, the, the original scriptures in the Bible did not have chapters. So many times, unfortunately, uh, those who put the chapter breaks were not in the most convenient places, but um, we do need chapters, so we know where we're going to reference the Bible. So in chapter 3, just to give you a quick, quick um, synopsis, um, Paul was talking about, and he's kind of contrasting the old ministry of the law with the new ministry of the covenant of grace, which we have in Christ. And he goes on to talk about how this new ministry um, has, in effect, blinded many people to the truth. Um, especially he's referring to the Jews who are so, were so entrenched in the law and the ceremonies that when Christ was preached, they were not able to um, see the truth. Hence, Moses often wore a veil on his face when he met with the, with the Israelites, and they couldn't see his face, which was just an emblem, a symbol of the fact that they couldn't see what Moses really was talking about or representing in the new covenant. So, um, Paul begins chapter 4 now, and he says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in trickery nor distorting the word of God, but by the open proclamation of the truth, commending ourselves to every person's conscience in the sight of God. So, Paul here is... is is beginning an argument, which he does all throughout 2 Corinthians, of trying to authenticate himself as a true apostle of Christ because he had many enemies. And it's, it's difficult for us to understand that today because we're living in the West and, and mainly Christians are looked upon pretty much as any other individual. And you come and preach Christ, you're not worried about getting killed, um, at least so far. So um, at this point, Paul is defending his, his um, status, and he's saying, we're sincere in our preaching. When we preach, we're preaching to you the whole counsel of God. He's saying we're preaching in sincerity and truth as opposed to those preaching with pretense for material gain or popularity, which was going on in his day. Or simply even just to discredit me, the Apostle Paul, and show that I'm not really a true apostle. And so the quick thing I got out of this is how important it is, from what Paul is saying here, for those of us who preach the gospel and and bring the word of God, to examine our motives and to make sure that we are preaching out of the right motive, which is the glory of God. But then he moves on quickly now, and he says, but we also see the truth, we also see the apostle here is engaged in declaring or proclaiming truth. Um, the ESV, which you're reading from, and I was kind of, I like the NSB in this chapter more, but in the ESV it says, we, we proclaim the open statement of the truth. Um, something that may, I think, in my opinion, many preachers have gone away in our day from and using, which I think in the older churches and in the older times, especially the times of the apostles, there was a lot more declarative truth where the word of God was just proclaimed and it was preached and it was stated as fact with authority. And that has a place in preaching because... Um, whatever you say out of the word of God is authoritative. Someone once said, all you need to do, the Bible's like a lion. All you need to do is unleash it. Okay? And the words will just speak for themselves and convict you. So now, what is that truth that the apostle was anxious to proclaim or declare to the word? Look at verse 5. It's simply this. He says, for we do not preach or proclaim ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord. 
You see, I just want to digress just for a second because every Christian believes in a certain body of doctrine or truth. And to that Christian, they're non-negotiable. Okay? So if you're a true Christian, there are certain things you are convicted of and you believe and you will not, um, you will not deny them under even severe circumstances. So there's this body of truth that every truly regenerate, born-again child of God believes. They are non-negotiables, but are the kind of convictions that bind the conscience to the degree that parting with life is easier than parting with that truth. So as I look out here today, I wonder how many of you here identify to some degree with what I'm saying. There are certain things in the Bible, certain doctrines, certain truth that you hold so dear that one day you read in the Bible and it just jumped out at you and you know that this is the truth of God because you were convicted by the Holy Spirit and now you are not willing to let go of that truth no matter what. So what are some examples of these truths? I just want to list a few of you because if someone is visiting here today, or is kind of like curious, well, what kind of truth or what kind of doctrine um, could, do we really need to hold on to as believers? Examples, on a, they're brief. Uh, number one, Jesus is God manifest in the flesh, which was a huge problem in, in Paul's day, and we'll get into that a little bit later. But Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Number two, the Lord Jesus walked this earth as the God-man, He was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day. Non-negotiable. Number three, right now the Lord Jesus is seated on the right hand of the Father, reigning in glory and majesty. Number four, and this same Jesus is coming back bodily very soon to judge the living and the dead and render to everyone according to his work. And we were, were reminded, if you were here Last Sunday with Pastor Jathan, he discussed Matthew 25 where he opened up the whole scene of Judgment Day and the fact that uh, believers and non-believers were resurrected and were rendered according to their works. So these are some of the non-negotiable truths that every, every Christian holds dear. But now in verse 5, the chief doctrine Paul was proclaiming is this. It's simply Jesus Christ is Lord. This was the central truth the apostle was declaring. But what does that really mean? It means Jesus is God. It means Jesus is God becoming man, the God-man. His deity and his divine Godhead were never mixed with his humanity, and therefore the word Godhead is useful, god I'm sorry, God-man, God-man is useful because he shows we are not mixing the two together. They were never mixed throughout his earthly ministry. They're not mixed now. He is fully 100% man and fully 100% God. It is not something for us to comprehend, but it is something for us to apprehend by faith. So Jesus is Lord. Now, God takes on a human flesh and becomes like one of us so he can be our mediator, our redeemer, our advocate with the Father. And so the deity and the divine origin of the Lord Jesus Christ is critical to our whole faith. This is very significant because every other Christian doctrine in the New Testament hangs on this foundational truth. Once you take away this foundational truth, everything pretty much crumbles. Now, one thing we need to get a hold of here is this was, this idea that Jesus is God 2,000 years ago, when we're looking at a a typical Jewish man walking the streets and the the dusty roads of Jerusalem and Jericho and all these other places and looked like you and me for the most part, And the fact that Paul is raising him up right now and declaring that he is Lord, this is not as simple as it seems. This created so much opposition, especially with the Jewish leaders who were offended by this proclamation. 
And you can read about it all throughout the Gospels. I mean, at one point, they told him, who do you think you are? I mean, who gives you the authority to do these things? So they're, they're questioning his authority because they're judging by appearance and they're judging by what they see, right? Now, they should have known better because they've also seen supernatural miracles. But they were so blinded to the fact and so enraged by him stating that he is not like they are. He has a, he has a heavenly origin and that, that it is very necessary for you to believe who he is. He told them in John 8, you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And the he here is very emphatic, meaning I am the one, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, I am the one who has come, I'm the Savior of the world. And all of these things are, are implied in the he. So the words of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the miracles of Christ, and even the resurrection of Christ would all mean very little if Jesus is not God. So I submit that to your consideration. No human being can atone for your sins. No human being can intercede for you. No human being can return and raise you from the dead once you've died and look you in the face and say to you, if you're a believer, welcome, servant, for all, your, for all the good that you have done. So this is, this is a non-negotiable. And the other thing that's really important, and it was, it was stressed in one comment, commentator I was looking at, is that the supreme lordship of Christ was central in apostolic preaching. I mean, almost everywhere you go, you see them lifting up Jesus and said, he's Lord. This Messiah whom you crucified is Lord. And they would come back and repeat that and repeat that because this was something in their day that they faced great opposition against. That's why in places Paul says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In another place he says and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He's Lord. Did you know that there are over 700 references in the New Testament that declare the Lordship of Christ? This is not a minor doctrine or a debatable topic like some people think. If you do not, if you're sitting here today and you do not believe Jesus is Lord, you are not a Christian. You are lost and you're on your way to perdition. And one other thing I just want to point out about this. Sometimes we take it for granted when we say Jesus is Lord to our friends and our neighbors and maybe our comfort zone and relatives and things like that. And that's fine. We need to be declaring these truths that we'll see in a minute. But back in the early church, the very declaration that you make that Jesus is Lord could cost you your life. And so you had an issue here where if you would proclaim Jesus is Lord, you'd better mean it. Or you may not be around the next day. So the early Christians who lived under Roman domination suffered persecution and martyrdom for their faith. That's why they often met secretly in rooms and built catacombs to meet and worship in secret. You counted the cost back then. I can guarantee you there was no easy believism back then. Nevertheless, this is our duty. Every single one of us that names the name of Jesus needs to proclaim these truths. I understand that particularly ministers of the gospel need to proclaim these truths, but it is for every Christian to proclaim these truths. So we need to be reminded of them daily, just like the short list I read you. What what is it that I really believe? And, and repeat these truths to yourself. We need to stir up one another with these truths. They are our hope, strength, and consolation. We need to preach these truths to ourselves if it means writing them down and reading them every day. If we believe these truths, we should proclaim these truths. 
Now, I just want to transition for a minute here and show you something. If you are here today and you have received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can really rejoice in that because this means God was pleased to reveal him to you. It's not because you're more worthy or smarter than others, but it was only because of God's mercy. We read in Titus 3, 5, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. He chose to reveal his son to you. Paul in in, in Galatians, he speaks about how it pleased God to reveal his son to him. You remember the story when he's on the road to Damascus. I mean, he was anything but for Christ. He was out to persecute and to destroy the Christians that were there. And he has the marvelous encounter where the Lord Jesus appears to him, stops him in his tracks, and all of a sudden, he is, he's had a revelation of Christ. And he's been changed ever since. So I want you to rejoice, my dear friend, if you have come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior because he chose to reveal his Son to you by giving you spiritual light that you may see and believe you're an heir of heaven and a recipient of electing love. Listen to what Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 13. 11 to 13. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. The context here is Jesus is going around among the crowds and he's speaking in parables. Now, I'm assuming because there's another part in the Bible that says, and without a a parable, he didn't speak. So this was a common thing. Jesus spoke in stories and in parables all throughout with the crowd. But in Matthew 13, 11 to 13, we read this. The disciples came to him and they asked him. I mean, it struck them, right? Why are you always speaking in these parables and riddles? And, and they said to him, why do, you speak, why do you speak to them in parables, to the crowds? And Jesus, he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. And who, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And by the way, it's not like Jesus was helping them to understand here. I want you to catch that. Because... In a sense, they didn't want to understand, and Jesus sort of further blinded them with his parables and riddles so that they really were lost and couldn't understand. Because then look at the transition here, what he says. He says, but then turning to his disciples, he says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now, unfortunately, this miracle of the new birth and the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is not the case with most people. Please look at at verses 3 to 4 with me one more time. Paul explains in verses 3 and 4, and even if our gospel is hid or is veiled, depending on your translation, it says, it might say veiled, but the idea it's hidden, which is interesting in itself, right? The gospel is hidden, it's veiled. But it's not veiled to believers. It is veiled to those who are perishing. The King James Version has lost. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you see Paul's emphatic statement of that again? The glory of God who is the image, the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And he's bringing that home to us. You see, 
As fallen sons and sons and daughters of Adam, we by nature are spiritually blind and spiritually dead. We need, we need two things from the Lord. We need light and we need sight. The light is the revelation of God in his word. Okay? This is the light, the Holy Scriptures. They bring us the truth and they bring us the light. The sight, however, is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. So, in a sense, this book will remain a closed book to me without the help of the Holy Spirit in opening my eyes to understand what I'm reading. So we need the light, which is the scriptures, and the sight, which is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, by which he enlightens our mind to understand the Bible, to have one or the other is not enough. In, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul makes this amazing statement. I've always been drawn to this statement because it answers a lot of questions. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, he says, The natural man, and here he's not talking about a regenerate person, right? He's talking about any common person in the world who cares less about Jesus, right? He says, The natural man does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. He doesn't accept them. For their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. We need the Spirit of God to open our minds and our hearts to understand these things. And so, as I was reading this, I also came across an interesting quote by John Calvin where he talks about, he, he compares the gospel and the light of Jesus Christ to the sun, the brilliant sun shining above, above us. Everybody sees the sun, it's brilliant, it's shine, you can't miss it. But he says, you know what? It doesn't matter how brilliantly it shines, because if you're blind, you can't see it. And so he's making his point of the necessity of light and sight. This is the great doctrine of the total depravity of mankind. People are by nature, they're by nature spiritually blind. They don't see God in creation. They don't see the glory of Christ. They don't see the relevance of Christ. They don't see the reality and ugliness of sin. They don't see who God is. They don't see who they are. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they're going. They're in the dark. They're blind. But unfortunately now, unfortunately, it gets worse. Let's take a look at verses 3 and 4 one more time so I can highlight something for you. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, lost, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds. In the Greek there, it's literally blinded the thoughts of the unbelieving so that they will not see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we see that unbelievers are really bound by two cords. Their own willful ignorance of the truth and Satan's mind-blinding influence. So as I was reading this, I, I, what came to my mind actually was the parable of Christ when he spoke about the sower and the seeds. If you remember that parable right at the beginning... It says the sower went out to seed, but some of the seed fell on the wayside of the road. And it says immediately the ravens and the birds swooped down and devoured those seeds. Well, it's a parable, right? But later on, he explains secretly to his disciples what that means. And he says that basically the seed is the word of God. And as it is being preached and declared, like cast out like the seeds right? And they fall on the ears of unbelievers. The birds and the ravens represent Satan and his demons. And so what happens at that point is they're aware of what's going on and they just come right in there and snatch that word right out of your mind because they want to leave you in darkness. That's their sole purpose. And so Jesus made that statement to them 
and it is a very, very telling story, and we ought to pay attention to it. The devil actively blinds the thoughts of men, but not against their will, and this is important. It's not like people are exonerated because it's all the devil's fault. You know, the devil made me do it. No, the devil can't force anyone to sin without their consent. So one writer put it, put it this way. Though the devil is here said to blind the minds of unbelievers, no person understands the apostle to mean that he has the power of blinding men's minds directly, far less that he hath the power of blinding them forcibly. For in that case, who could remain unblinded? But he means that Satan blinds unbelievers by suggesting those thoughts and imaginations and exciting those lusts and passions by which such as believe not are easily persuaded to shut their eyes against the light of the gospel because it condemns their vicious practices. Let me give it to you the way way Christ put it. He said in John 3, this is what Jesus testifies. And here's the problem. He says, light has come into the world in reference to himself. I've come. I've shown you what I can do. You've seen my power. You've seen my words. No man spoke as I spoke. And all of these great things that I've done. He said, so the light has come. It's here. But what's the problem? It says, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's the problem. If, you, if a person is committing evil deeds, they don't want the light. The light's just going to expose who they are and what they're doing. They run away from the light. That makes a lot of sense. Okay? And so this is the issue. Men love darkness rather than light. This is the testimony of our Lord. Now quickly, I want you to just, in contrast to what I've been saying about unbelievers... Take a look at verse 6. It says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So now Paul transitions quickly here and talks about believers. And he says, first off, and we read that in our scripture reading in, in Ephesians 2, where we're all, we all started out dead in sins and trespasses until God began to quicken us. And so here it's discussing the same thing. Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to the darkened heart and shines the light on it and reveals Christ to the heart and shows the heart who Christ is who he is in his identity, what he's done, and how absolutely necessary he is. And how needful you are for him. Unbelievers don't think that way. Some of them don't even, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had conversations with with unbelievers before and you're trying to share the gospel with them and you're speaking about spiritual things. I've noticed sometimes when that happens is that they are shifting and shuffling and they're not really comfortable with what you're trying to say and then at the first opportunity they'd like to change the subject. This is not a very, uh, it's not really when I'll talk about this. Okay? And of course it could be because of conviction of sin or it could be for the very fact that they don't even know what you're talking about and you're really wasting their time because it's foolishness to them. Now, I want to look at the difficulty. I'm on point two, the difficulty. If I haven't uh, gone, gone too far astray here, we'll look at the difficulty, verses 8 through 12. We are afflicted in every way. The apostle now transitions. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. 
For we who live are constantly being handed over to death because of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Now, primarily, this passage is talking really about the apostles and their sufferings in bringing the gospel to us. And again, it's difficult for us to imagine what they went through because if you remember, Jesus called 12 apostles originally. This was a small band of men, and they had to go out against a hostile word, uh, world sorry, and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And it was not always welcomed. And you know the opposition, I kind of referred to that earlier. So the apostles were great sufferers for the sake of the gospel. They sort of walked in the shadow of the cross. Their sufferings emulated and were very similar to the sufferings of Christ, short of the cross, of course. But they walked, they were, they, they were exposed. If you read the passages of what Paul talks about, you know, stoned, left for dead, whipped, shipwrecked, on and on. It's something the average Christian does not experience. And so they were great sufferers for the sake of the gospel. We ought to be thankful for, for them. But even so, that that's true, it also includes all believers. So the application to all believers is still here. It is a common lot of all humanity, as a matter of fact, to suffer in this world. There's no use pretending otherwise. The Bible is clear about this. But particularly the apostles describing the tension that exists in the Christian life. The flesh warring against the spirit. Carnal wisdom versus heavenly wisdom. Sense versus faith. Humility versus pride, etc. Paul was caught again talking to a group of downcast, uh, downcast disciples. He says, through many tribulations... Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14, 22. Jesus plainly told us, he said, look, the door is narrow and the way is difficult. Job said, man, is, man, man that is born of a woman is of a few days and full of trouble. And our Lord Jesus, once again, he said, I have said these things to you, to the disciples. This was in the upper chamber before his uh, arrest and, and crucifixion. But he spoke to them and he said, I said these things to you that you may have peace. But notice, he says, in the world you will have trouble. I didn't come to take that away presently. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart because I have overcome the world. And your faith can overcome the world as well. One commentator put it like this. He says, it means here, and, and originally he's talking about the apostles, but it says, it means here, we're often brought into circumstances of great embarrassment where they hardly knew what to do or what course to take. They were surrounded by foes. They were in need. They were in circumstances which they had not anticipated and which greatly perplexed them. But they were not in despair. And the idea of Paul here is that they were not left entirely without resource. Their needs were provided by, by God. I don't know if you've had the experience sometimes in your life where you just felt like you're hanging by a thread. I mean, if one, one other thing goes wrong, you know, I'm just going to throw in the towel. And if you had that experience, but I want you to take hope in this. That thread is the resource of God. And so long as it's that divine hand holding the thread, it will not break. And you're safe. So Christian, think over your life. Have you ever been in despair? Remember how God delivered you. Were you ever confused as to which way you should go? Remember how God guided you. Have you ever felt overwhelmed that you thought you couldn't take one more step? Remember how God sustained you. Hasn't the Lord been faithful to you? Great is your faithfulness, our God and Father. Finally, let's consider the Christian's destiny. 
We looked at the duty. Proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. That's at the top of the list. That's what keeps us going. That's our hope. That's our strength. That's our consolation. Jesus is Lord. But now let's take a look at our destiny. The difficulties, of course, we talked about. The Christian life. Expect them. Don't run from them. Endure them. Stay under them until God calls them off you. Because in his providence, our Lord is good. And he will not give you more than you're able to bear. As we read in 1 Corinthians 13. So, verses 16, 17, and 18. If you take a look at that with me. Therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our light, or I'm sorry, for our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal but the things which are not seen are eternal. I like to think of this passage right here, especially verses 18 and, and, uh, verses 18 and 19, where he talks about looking. We do not look at the things that are seen, but we look at the things that are unseen. I like to think about that as the perspective or the point of view of the Christian. The Christian is aware that there's a spiritual world. And he's also aware that this world is passing away. And so he is always endeavoring to stir up himself to that realization and realize that he's moving quickly and rapidly to another world. And it is a spiritual world. And so the apostle exhorts us here because this is true. He says, focus on the unseen. Look at the unseen. But then... You might be asking the question, how do we see the invisible? And I think what might be helpful for you here is Hebrews 11.1. So I'm just going to turn there real quick if you want in your Bible to Hebrews 11.1. And um, I believe that the apostle here gives us the, the clue as to how do we do this? How do we look at the unseen? So in Hebrews 11.1, 1, this is the great chapter of the hall of faith of all believers. He says in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the quick answer to this of looking at how do we look at the invisible things is faith. We walk by faith, not by sight, right? So the concept here is we must enrich and strengthen our faith through reading the scriptures and going back to the gospels and praying and fellowshipping with one another to strengthen our faith to realize these, these truths that there is an invisible world and, and the Lord Jesus is in heaven reigning and he is coming back coming back to, to judge the living and the dead with the holy angels and it's going to be a marvelous scene. And it's real, but it's in another dimension right now. However, it will be visible in due time. And so, we don't lose heart now. He says we don't lose heart. The Greek is we don't faint. We don't grow weary. Sometimes it can really drag. And, it, and it's long. But the idea here. And I like a Greek word that, that Paul uses here that I don't know if we have a similar one in English. But it's hupomeno. And the idea of the hupomeno word is, is the hupo is to go under. The meno is to remain. And so the idea is when we're bearing our trials that were predestined to us by the Lord. They are not accidents. They were given to you to bear. Hupomeno has the idea of staying under that burden not resorting to your own schemes or anything, and staying under that burden and waiting upon the Lord for his time. 
And so this is very helpful when we think about our trials that come upon us. So we go on in our faith, in our hope, in our love, in our endurance until the end. Why? Because, because though we see that our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. We're being strengthened in the inner man, in the soul, in the essence of who you are. We are not shaken up because we see our bodies growing weak and frail, but rather we rejoice because we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. We are kept. Now, it's very interesting here when you, when you read this passage at first glance, and some commentators think that, but I kind, of, I kind of agree with the opposing commentators, is that the outer man, when he talks about our outer man is failing, he's not just talking about the body and the flesh. He's really talking about everything in this present life. Everything, when everything in this present life begins to fade, including our bodies, when we get, when we get sick, when loved ones leave us, when we're facing trial after trial, when the glamour of life seems to just go away. And you're beginning to see that there's a transition happening from this life to the next. Paul wants you to rejoice in that because he says, although this outer man is wasting away, the new man, the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, your real home, salvation of your soul, a company of innumerable angels and righteous, the spirits of righteous men made perfect. All of these things are our inheritance and should stir us up and hold us on and give us endurance to keep moving. So why should we remain discouraged? A true Christian never has a good reason to stay depressed. Notice I didn't say a true Christian never gets depressed. But a true Christian never has a good reason to stay and remain depressed. Our problems are temporary, but our joy will last forever. The Christian is always moving forward. We have this posture of moving forward. We don't look behind us. We move forward just like the armor of God when it talks about that in Ephesians 6. You've noticed there's nothing for your back. You have no covering for your back because you're supposed to be going forward, not backwards. And so we're going forward. He can't stay stuck in the past because he sees the celestial city by the eye of faith. So like the character Christian in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, he's progressing toward his home, treading upon the dust and the ashes of this world as he goes. He's leaving it behind. He's moving forward. He set his face toward heaven. He's looking at the face of Jesus Christ and he sees that is his only hope and that is his glorious destiny and he wants to go. The Christian song is, God is always with me. He holds me by my right hand. He guides me with his counsel and afterward he will receive me to glory. One more commentator put it this way when he talks about looking at the things uh, that are unseen and not looking at the things that are seen. He says, this is the weight of glory will be brought out for us while we look or provided we look, namely by faith and expectations, not at the things which are seen, men, money, honor, pleasure, the things of this earth, for to look at these will only rend us more earthly and carnal, more unfit for the heavenly state. But rather, we look at the things which are not seen, God, Christ, grace, glory, the things of heaven, to look at which, with faith, desire, and expectation, will naturally tend to render us more heavenly, more holy, and divine in our intentions and our affections. The word for look in Greek is the word scopio. This is where we get our English word scope or scope out. And it's here used to render properly, it signifies to look with an aim. It's not just a wandering eye or a consideration every now and then. No, it's to look with an aim. 
at a mark which we intend to hit or an object which we wish to lay hold on and consequently endeavor to obtain it. The things which are seen are temporal. This refers particularly to the apostles that what they suffered. That's what kept them going. I mean, you read about the Apostle Paul being caught up into the third heaven and seeing things. He, he, he tells us, he says, I saw things and I heard things. They're, they're unlawful for me to tell you what they were. And I personally believe this was God's intention for Paul because of his tremendous suffering to show him a glimpse of heaven so that he can continue and he can recall what he saw and what he heard. The things which are seen are temporal. The things which are not seen are eternal. So he says, wealth, pleasure, fame, the three idols which the people of this world adore are all to endure but for a little time. They will soon vanish away. So is with pain and sorrow and tears. They'll soon vanish away. All that we enjoy and all that we suffer here must soon vanish away and disappear. The most splendid palace will decay. The most magnificent city will fall to ruins. And the most extended possessions can be enjoyed but a little time. So the acutest pain will soon be over. The most lingering disease will soon cease. Having seen these things and understood these things, my friends, we can think this way. We have just a few more trials to go. Just a few more miles to travel. Just a few more burdens to bear. And we will fall asleep only to awaken in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believer, take comfort in that. Take comfort that the Lord is always with you and has promised never to leave you or forsake you. You are his possession. You are his property, his blood-bought child. The Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So keep looking, my friend, keep looking. Keep looking at those invisible things, weighing, considering, anticipating the unseen things, the kingdom of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the holy angels, and the coming glory. For soon your faith will be turned into sight, and you will be in the presence of the king forevermore. And Father, I pray that you take this, this message, which is just like a treasure because it is the word of God, but it's held up in an earthen vessel with many faults and many sins. But Lord, you can still take this word and bless it to the hearts of the hearers and give glory to yourself in what has being said here. Encourage us, Lord, for we know that we are not able and we are not sufficient for these things. We need the help of your spirit. We need the guidance of your spirit to continue to reveal Jesus Christ to our minds and our hearts that we may become inflamed in love for him and begin to see this passing world is not worth looking at. But what is really worth looking at is that glorious world to come. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.